This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. This podcast contains adult themes and listener discretion is advised. to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. My name is Eric Rivenis, and pleased as punch to have you here with me. Okay, so make a nice cup of tea for this episode, perhaps flavored with nutmeg or some other spice favored by the Dutch East India Company. We are traveling back to 1629 and the western coast of Australia. It is the tale of the Batavia, a Dutch ship on its way to buy spices when it suffers both a shipwreck and a mutiny of terrible proportions. I'm very pleased today to be speaking to the author of Batavia's Graveyard. It is a thrilling, jaw-dropping, absolutely horrific story, brilliantly brought to life by my guest, Mike Dash. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me. Pleasure. So this book fires on so many cylinders. It is a story about the vilest of villains, incredible heroes, and a plot line that exceeds anything to ever come out of Hollywood. And one of the most interesting characters in your book is not even human. It is the Batavia, a marvel of naval engineering, incredibly advanced in the 1620s, but at the same time, for modern readers, a virtual (laughs) hellhole on the high seas. Tell us about this incredible ship and the Dutch East India Company that commissioned it. Yes, I mean, the, the, the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, that's the, the Dutch abbreviation of its name, um, was founded in 1602 at the very beginning of the, um, the Dutch Age of Exploration. Um, and its purpose was to make as much profit as possible in the East Indies spice trade. Um, that was the, the luxury trade of the day. Um, the reason being that in the age before refrigeration, essentially, when it was very difficult to prevent meat from uh, getting tainted and starting to rot, uh, spices were actually pretty much imperative just to have a palatable meal. Um, and bringing over not just the, the traditional pepper, which was sort of the, the, the biggest, most available spice, but the, the real luxury ones that cost the most money, which were things like nutmeg and cinnamon, uh, which could only be found in very small areas of the East Indies, what's now Indonesia. Um, was what the East India Company was all about. And in order to do that, they had to build a whole fleet of merchant ships, which at the same time had to be capable of defending themselves against sort of local piracy and so on. So, so the Batavia was a sort of modern, uh, in modern terms, it was sort of a multi-purpose ship. It was designed to hold as much cargo as possible. It had a, a gun deck and a fairly serious battery of armament. Um, and that meant that it had a kind of, the sort of crew that was sort of, more or less bound to cause trouble sooner or later because at one side it had a whole group of merchants and the merchants were bizarrely enough and I think this is fairly unique to the East India Company actually they were the people actually in charge of the voyage so the skipper of the ship was not in fact the most senior person on board but the upper merchant the senior 
VOC representative on board was the most senior person in charge. And, you know, he could tell the, the skipper what to do within sort of fairly broad parameters. So there's one potential source of conflict right there. And then you have um, a, a mixed crew of soldiers, sailors who never get on very well. And again, rather uniquely to the East India Company, in order to make, make it possible to even recruit people in the first place uh, and send them to a place where infectious disease would wipe out well over half of the uh, the people who go out to the East Indies are just never going to come back. Um, they also had a fairly large complement of women. So in the Batavis case, there were something like 25 women on board, which again is, is really, really unusual. And, you know, 25 women and 300 men is also a bit of an incendiary kind of a, a mix. And these people are all stuffed into a ship which, as you say, I mean, you know, by, by contemporary standards, it was a modern of technology. But by our standards, it was, you know, t- tiny, cramped, uncomfortable, um, all the things, again, that would make life you know, pretty hideous. Uh, the ship itself had, as I mentioned, about 340 people on board when she sailed. That's about 160 foot long. Only the, the, a few of the officers had private cabins. Everyone else was sleeping in communal sleeping areas. This is before the invention of the hammock, or just after the invention of the hammock. But almost everybody's sleeping on slightly hard, uncomfortable sleeping pads on a, a rocking, rolling ship. The only hot food comes from a tiny galley. Um, everything uh, pretty much after the first couple of weeks is going to be stored, preserved food, which is you know, heavily salted and pretty unpalatable and very difficult to cook. And then you're sailing this ship, of course, all the way from Holland uh, down to Indonesia around Africa. So you're undergoing you know, extremes of temperature. You start off in, in the sort of freezing cold Dutch midwinter. Um, you go through the tropics where it's boiling hot in the doldrums where you don't have any wind. And then you have to round Africa and finally pick up the, the sort of fast currents that will eventually speed the voyage. And so in the course of all of that, the meat and the food on board is being subjected to the same extremes of temperature. And what you tend to find happening is a sort of huge proliferation of the insect population on the ship. One of the most remarkable stats I remember when I was researching, which I think made its way into the book, was that a, a Danish ship of the same type um, doing the same route, the captain offered a, a tot of rum for every thousand cockroaches the crew could, could catch and found himself with something like 38,000 dead cockroaches on his desk the next morning. And a lot of these a lot of these insects were finding their way into the food, of course. And I think that one of the things that people most remember from the book, and it, it's remarkable given, as I'm sure we're going to come on to, the sort of debauchery and murder that goes on in this story. But one of the most memorable things for a lot of people is the fact that, you know, the, the hard tack, the ship's uh, biscuit, um, has three different sorts of insect in it. It has um, sort of weevils and worms and and they, these insects have very different tastes that you can tell. You know, the uh, the cockroaches taste of sausage, the weevils taste sort of sour and bitter, and you kind of have to try and bang as many of these insects out as you possibly can against the side of the ship before you eat the food with whatever insects remain inside it. So, so one way or another, you really are talking about a you know a very uncomfortable voyage. This is before the invention of suntan lotion, for example. Everyone's wearing hot, heavy, dark woolen clothes for the whole of the voyage. The whole thing must have just been almost unbearable by modern standards. And that's before you get to the discipline on board, of course. Right. Could you set the scene for us on the Batavia as it headed out to sea? Who were the figures on the ship that played pivotal roles in the story? Well, there are several people who, who need to be mentioned here. Um, one of the things you've got to bear in mind, of course, is that East India Company, although it's the, the largest company in the world at this time, it's a relatively small community at the top end. And, you know, people bump into each other on different voyages. And there's, there's lots of previous, as we might say, um, involved in the story of the Batavia. And the, the most significant instance of this is the, the rivalry and the poor relationship between the upper merchant, who, as I mentioned, is the, the senior guy on board, whose name was Francis Pelsart. Uh, who was a, a veteran um, who came, had, had spent quite a lot of time in India. But rather unusually for the VOC, he was actually uh, not Dutch. He came from the Spanish Netherlands, which is now Belgium. And he had originally been a Catholic, which in theory should have meant he shouldn't have been recruited in the first place, but he had influential relatives. So he was a rather odd fish. Um, and up against him was the skipper of the ship, whose name was Aaron Jacobs, who was kind of almost a a classic idea of an old salt. I mean, he was probably the oldest man on board, maybe about 45, a superb seaman, but also a drunkard and a lecher who spent quite a lot of his spare time um, cozying up to the various women on board and trying to seduce them. So these two guys, you know, the rather fastidious, rather weak Pelsart and the sort of blustery old salt Jacobs were um, enemies and didn't get on at all well. And that sort of did underlie quite a lot of the problems that happened later on. To make matters worse, 
Pelsart's deputy, uh, who was a failed apothecary called Euronymus Cornelius, turned out to be the villain of the piece. Euronymus was a very, very unusual character for the time. Uh, Insofar in as we can tell, and it's obviously very difficult sometimes to to do sort of post hoc psychoanalysis is a dangerous thing to do, but he did have very many of the characteristics of the psychopath, which um, in a communal society like the Netherlands of the 17th century was a pretty unusual type of person. Um, and he had a sort of catastrophic personal history behind him. He'd been born in Friesland, which is the, the northern part of the Netherlands, um, and had moved south with his wife um, to uh, the, the sort of posher part, to a town called Harlem, where he'd set up an apothecary's shop. And after a couple of years, it had failed catastrophically. And from the research I did for the book, um, it, I found the reason for this, which was that um, his wife had had a baby in common with all the the, uh, the middle classes in the Netherlands. At that time, she had um, farmed the baby out to a wet nurse. Uh, and after a few months, the baby was handed back to her badly infected with syphilis, uh, of which it died at the age of sort of eight or ten months. So the word of this got out. And, of course, you know, a large portion of the customers of the apothecary shop assumed that either Euronymous or his wife must have been unfaithful to each other or um, to, to require the syphilis, uh, which caused their, their clientele to basically abandon them and their, their business went bankrupt. Euronymous's version of events was that the, the child probably acquired the syphilis from the wet nurse. And from a medical point of view, that is in fact possible. But there was a you know, huge disgrace, therefore, in his background. Um, and he was forced, essentially, to, to join this rather suicidal voice these in order to try to to recover his fortunes. And his, his main driver was, in fact, to you know become as wealthy as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, I don't think he particularly felt he had very much to go back to in the Netherlands either, having had a, you know, a falling out with his wife over the, the business of where the syphilis had come from, having lost his business, having been disgraced within his own community. He was, he was a pretty desperate man. So those are the three main male characters that one needs to know about at the beginning of the story anyway. But there is one fourth person I should mention, and this is the sort of femme fatale of the, the story, a woman called Krishia Jantz, who was the extraordinarily beautiful wife of another merchant of the East Indian Company. He was already out in, in Burma trading in slaves, in fact, and she was sailing out to join him. So she was there with her maid, um, but effectively an unaccompanied woman of um, you know some youth and uh, we're told by several different sources, you know, remarkably attractive. Um, and she was a magnet for the attentions of all three of the, the, the first guys I mentioned in the course of the voyage. And that's really where things start to go wrong. In your book, you delve quite a bit into Cornelius's background. And as you've already mentioned, he's got a pretty notorious backstory coming into this voyage. One of the most interesting connections he might have had was to a militant sect of the Anabaptists called the Battenbergers. Is that correct? Well, I can't prove it. Um, I'm, it seems likely, given the, the beliefs of this particular sect and, and what happens on the island, which perhaps we can go into a bit later. But again, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that it has kind of been lost to a lot, a lot of people's sort of understanding of history. I mean, nowadays, people look on the Anabaptists as... I mean, if you think about it, the Amish are probably the best known Anabaptists, certainly in the States. And they actually emerged effectively as a, a sort of counterbalance, as a sort of response to the, the really quite extraordinary events that happened in Anabaptist history in the century before the Batavia set sail. Because when the Anabaptists got started in the 1520s, they were a sort of radical apocalyptic millenarian sect. And their their belief was essentially that you know the second coming of Christ was was fairly imminent and it could be hastened by building a new Jerusalem for for him to return to and that required them to sort of seize control of some town and turn it into a a sort of perfect Christian society and and they succeeded rather amazingly really in retrospect in getting hold of a a town called Munster, which is on the German-Dutch border. Uh, they expelled everybody else, called all their co-religionists in and sort of fortified the town against the inevitable counter-strike. And to give you some idea of just how, how radical a thing this was, um, you know, this is at the time of, of Luther in the beginning of the Reformation. The Catholics and the, the Lutherans got together. They ganged up on the Anabaptists in order to retake the city, which is, again, a, a pretty unique event. And, and everybody in the city was massacred or um, tortured to death. And that was more or less the end of, of this millenarian Anabaptism, except that a small group who hadn't been in the city, um, led by a man called Jan van Battenberg, did continue to exist in the, the extremes of the Frisian countryside for about another 40 or 50 years afterwards. So we're talking about sort of the second half of the, the 16th century. And, and they then themselves, when they were sort of persecuted out of existence, had a couple of later splinter sects. 
And, you know, the, the beliefs of this particular group of Anabaptists were, you know, essentially in, in some respects what we would now think of as almost communist, um, you know, having property in common, including women, for example, would be one of them. And certainly um, a belief in the idea that you're, you're getting messages essentially sort of directly from God, that the Anabaptists didn't have a sort of priesthood. It's all a personal relationship with God. So um, that, that's one strand of Cornelius's beliefs. But the other strand, which kind of ties in rather unfortunately with it, seems to be picked up from a, a, a painter who lived in the same town, Arnhem, as, as Cornelius, called Terentius, and Terentius was was essentially a, a a libertine, which in in that particular sense, you know, means something rather specific. You know, he he believed in the idea of you know having pleasure on earth. He believed in the idea as well. I think that that, that it was important to cast aside the bounds of conventional society and to you know to to live a life which was about self fulfilment. And Cornelius you know, who, according to a number of the documents at the time, was sort of a disciple of, of Terentius, has seemed to have picked up some of these opinions. So so he has this sort of belief in, you know, the, the Anabaptist belief that everyone else's property should be his as well. He has the Terentian belief in, uh, you know, taking control of the situation and not binding himself by the conventional morality of the time. And he has psychopathic tendencies. And you know, that's a pretty dangerous trio of um, beliefs, um, you know, on board the Batavia, all of that is rather submerged because, you know, he has to exist uh, under the control of the VOC, which certainly wasn't a tolerant society. But of course, you know, things maybe happen in the course of the voyage that, that free him up from these constraints. And and, uh, and again, that's one of the, the threads we have to follow as we go through the story. Right, right. So the Batavia is well on its way to the Dutch East Indies when the whispers of mutiny begin. How did the, the plot to overthrow the ship unfold? It's it's difficult to be absolutely certain about this because we only have Pelsart's word for it. And after the events that we were going through, he sort of held a, a court of inquiry, which I, I think was fairly obviously in large part designed to exculpate himself from any blame. So, so we have to take some of the things he says with a pinch of salt, but the story that he told and which, which came out under torture, uh, which again makes it perhaps slightly questionable, uh, was that, um, Cornelius and Jacobs, the skipper, formed a friendship and decided that rather than, than go ahead and with the voyage, it was designed to essentially give them a small salary whilst making a gigantic fortune for the directors of the East India Company. It would be a much better idea to mutiny and seize the ship. So the ship was was carrying a gigantic amount of silver. Um, Europe at this point made no trade goods anybody really in the East Indies wanted to buy. So the only way of trading with them was to you send out money and you brought back cargo. So there were there were 12 or 13 um, large chests of silver which are kept in the captain's cabin. And if you could seize control of the ship, then that money would become yours. You could sail off to some sort of paradisical island in the, uh, the Indian Ocean. Madagascar had several sort of uh, prototype pirate communities already by this stage. And all you really needed really was to... Um, to get control of sufficient people to batten down the hatches to stop the soldiers from coming up and retaking the ship, chuck some of the the, uh, the leading people, probably including Pulsar, overboard, uh, and you could, in fact, seize control of the ship with maybe 25 or 30 people. And, and Jacobs and Cornelius between them were in quite a good position to do that. Jacobs obviously knew intimately all the seamen on board and you know, who was discontented, who was disgruntled, who was violent and uh, who he could depend upon. And Cornelius was a, a really remarkably sort of persuasive character. I mean, he was very well educated by the standards of the time. And I think that a lot of the people on board who were very badly educated found it very seductive to be talking to somebody who had such great command of words and was eloquent and obviously highly educated and could kind of spin fantasies almost of what their life after this mutiny would be. And so between them, they started um, to recruit members of the crew for this uh, planned mutiny. Uh, and the the thing that sort of set everything else in motion was that in order to disgrace and, and um, persuade the crew that Pelsart wasn't on their side, they decided that the best thing to do would be to launch an attack on, on Krisha Yantz, this beautiful woman I mentioned earlier. Now, by this stage, Pelsart had made it pretty obvious that, you know, he, he felt he was in love with her. And, and what they hoped was that by doing something, you know, truly disgraceful to her, they would tip him over the edge and he would react with such violent reprisals against the crew that they would be you know much more likely to to want him out essentially so um one night after dinner while lucretia was taking um, a stroll on deck she was set upon by a gang of masked men who the captain had recruited 
and uh, she had various sort of dung smeared over her and uh, uh, she was sort of dipped into the sea with a, on the end of a rope and generally kind of left as a quivering wreck on the, in the sort of cubby hole on the side of the ship. Pelsart didn't react as, as they had hoped he would because he was extremely ill by this point and he felt, I think, that he was too far from help and didn't know quite how, how many people he could rely on. And he decided to to wait until he got closer to the East Indies before taking action. So So the plan to incite a mutiny failed and it was while the the captain and cornelius were were trying to come up with an alternative way of, of getting their hands on the ship that they began to sail into the dangerous waters of western australia so as you mentioned before cornelius and jacobs are able to successfully complete their mutiny a disaster happens on june 4th of 1629 the batavia strikes a reef can you tell us about how and where it happened yes i mean you know i think a lot of people who who know even a little bit about australian history are quite kind of quite surprised to know that the west coast of australia was being visited by anybody at this point because we're about 150 160 years before captain cook and the um, and the british um, colonization of the other the far coast the east coast but um it, essentially what happened was that in the uh, in about 1610 the dutch who'd been trading with the east indies at that point for about 15 years um, and had been doing it in a very inefficient way by by rounding the coast of Africa and then sailing up to Madagascar and across to Malaysia and then around. And, I mean, against the currents and the prevailing winds, it used to take about 18 months to go from Amsterdam to what's now Jakarta, what was then the town of Batavia. But a ship that got blown further south discovered that there's a very strong current that runs across the roaring 40s about 800, 900 miles south of South Africa, which actually cuts something like eight or nine months off of the voyage. Um, so the, so the, the ship started sailing south into this current. And the idea was you would sort of sail, you'd sail east until you reach the right point, then turn north and you'd sort of intersect with the, the Sunda Strait, which separates Java from Sumatra. And that was where you wanted to be. Now, the problem at this point was that that required you to know what your longitude was. And there was in the 17th century no uh, adequate way of accurately measuring longitude. It wasn't for another hundred and something years that accurate enough clocks to allow that particular measurement were invented. So you're really working on sort of ready reckoning. And if you know, the winds were a little bit stronger than you reckoned, or the current was a little bit fiercer than you reckoned. You would essentially sail too far to the east. You would end up sort of hitting the coast of Australia or some of the shoals that were off the coast of Australia. Um, and what happened to Batavia was that they ran aground in a set of coral islands called Houtman's Abrolhas, which is um, about two days sail north of Perth which, of course, didn't exist at that time, and about 60 miles off the coast of Australia. And these islands are very low-lying, and it's very hard to see them at the best of times. And the Batavia was unfortunate enough to come across them in the middle of the night, and she struck one of the reefs um, before anything could be done uh, and impaled herself on it so firmly that they couldn't get her off. So the next morning, when it became obvious that the ship was completely stranded, they had to organise an evacuation, and again, I mean, we have to remember that in the 17th century, there's no such thing as you know, lifeboats for everybody. This is well before the Titanic. And there were only two small boats on board. So it took them pretty much the whole day to evacuate the people onto these little lumps of coral. And, you know, we're talking about not a sort of classic desert island with, um, you know, palm trees, coconuts, white beaches and sort of, you know, babbling brooks. We're talking about a desert, essentially. I mean, it's literally just dark lumps of, of bones of coal, uh, no shelter, no fresh water at all. The only food that's available is, you know, a few sea lions and birds if you can catch them uh, and what you can take off the ship. And, you know, it wasn't very long before the Batavia broke her back and disintegrated. So they weren't able to to bring ashore nearly enough supplies. Almost everybody survived the disaster. Only about 40 or 50 people drowned in the course of this rather chaotic evacuation. So we're left with sort of, you know, 280 people in a, in a very dangerous situation with enough supplies really to only, to, to last them for only a matter of a, of a few days. And Cornelius at that point, um, when he did get ashore, he was, he was found himself in command because, you know, what had happened was that Pelsart and Jacobs had decided that the only possible way of saving everybody's lives was to, to head for the mainland and try and find some water. So they, they went off in the boats, taking with them pretty much all of the able seamen and, uh, headed, headed for Australia and they weren't able to find fresh water. So they decided that the only way that they could possibly survive with themselves was to head for Batavia 
and try and mount a rescue mission from there. So, so they were out of the way. Cornelius was the, the senior man in charge, and he finds himself in this rather desperate situation of having 280-odd survivors to, to guard, to protect, to, to save, and not nearly enough supplies to do so. So Cornelius, as you say, has found himself the commanding officer in charge of the survivors. And <laughs> it's kind of like the wolf in control of the hen house. And it quickly devolves into a Lord of the Flies situation in the, in the most brutal way possible. And I know it's impossible to know exactly what is going on in his mind at this point, but you've researched him extensively. What do you think his mindset might have been as he surveyed the situation in front of him? And what do you think his goals were? Well, you're right in saying, you know, we can, to a certain extent, we can only speculate. We do have quite a lot of evidence from, you know, later interrogations of his his followers. I mean, you know, there are several things going through his mind at this point. The, the first thing is obviously rather uniquely amongst the survivors. You know, for him, um, a, you know, a rescue mission is probably not very good news. He doesn't know how much Pelsart knows about the planned mutiny. Uh, he doesn't know what Pelsart and Jacobs might be saying to each other on this boat uh, as it sails slowly up towards the, the East Indies, um, or whether his his com, uh, confederate is setting him out in order to save his own life or anything like that. But he's got a pretty good suspicion that if a rescue mission does, in fact, eventually turn up, you know, it might be really bad news for him because he's going to be arrested, thrown into chains, taken north and executed. So the, the last thing he wants is a successful res- rescue mission. But I think a couple of other possibilities suggest themselves to him at this point. The first thing is that amongst the survivors, there are at least 20 of the men who he had already co-opted into the mutiny. And he almost immediately sort of reactivates this group um, and they become effectively the ruling class on the island. So the situation for everybody else is, is, is pretty impossible um, for several reasons. Firstly, you know, Cornelius, as the senior East India Company man on board, has absolute authority and life, you know, life or death power over everybody else just by virtue of being the senior officer. In addition to that, he has, you know, a gang of 25 cutthroats at his back and they control all of the weapons. So nobody else has, you know, they have the swords, the muskets, the spears, and nobody else has anything to, to fight back with. And thirdly, only about one in seven people at this period could swim at all. And they're stuck on a tiny island. It's about the size of two football fields put together with essentially, therefore, almost no way of getting off. Um, and so everybody is sort of absolutely at him and his, his, his thugs. Mercy. And I think that he thinks that there are, you know, two possible things that might happen. If a rescue ship arrives, his plan is that they will, they'll rush it, they'll, they'll take, they'll, they'll seize control of the rescue ship, throw all the officers of that ship overboard and, you know, turn pirate as they had originally planned to do. Um, I, I should have mentioned in my previous answer that, it, you know, in accordance with the rules of the VOC, the first thing they'd done after they ran ashore was to take all the silver on, on shore before they rescued anybody. They rescued the money and that's what the, the Dutch East India Company was just like. So the, the silver was still there and they could still, if they could get it onto a ship that was capable of navigating, they could still sort of carry out plan A. If plan B uh, had to be put into place, plan B was essentially for Cornelius and his guys to survive as long as possible. And in order to survive as long as possible, they had to start thinning out the ranks of the survivors because they soon ran through the sea lions. Uh, there weren't enough birds. There was not, not enough food and certainly not enough water. And so um, the plan was essentially to to split the group up, get rid of the, the, the most uh, dangerous people by shipping them over um, using sort of driftwood canoes and rafts that they, that they made, uh, ship them off to other islands where they could be isolated and then, you know, start uh, whittling down the numbers of people who were left to the point where there'd be enough food and everyone could, could at least live reasonably comfortably with their captive women in this, um, in, in this sort of group of islands. And Cornelia shows really how cunning and intelligent he is. Because the men he sends off are the soldiers and the hired mercenaries who would prove to be a physical threat to him. And he does this, of course, so he can, he can carry out his dastardly plans without opposition. Absolutely. I mean, he's not unintelligent as many of the great villains of history, of course, haven't been. And even though these soldiers have been disarmed, you know, I mean, Cornelius is one of his first orders, sort of says everyone should put their, their weapons into a central store, which, as I say, he, he and his men effectively then have complete control over. But just by virtue of their military training, you know, the, these other guys and the fact that they're young, fit, healthy guys, they are a potential threat to him. So, yes, I mean, the, the very first thing almost he does 
is to ship off almost the whole of the, the group of soldiers under the command of a, a guy called Weber Hayes, who was just a, an ordinary private soldier. But he obviously had some fairly extraordinary qualities because he was sort of elected as the uh, as the leader of this group of soldiers when all of their officers went off with Pelsard in the boat. So, so Weber Hayes was told to take his 40 men off to another island uh, where Cornelius was pretty sure they were going to basically just, um, uh, they, they were going to be left to uh, die of thirst. I mean, the promise, of course, was, you know, you go over there, have a look around. If you find some supplies, sort of set a set a fire and we'll come and get you. And if you don't, we'll resupply you with some water. And of course, he has no intention of resupplying them with some water. And there's no reason, as far as Cornelius is concerned, to imagine there could possibly be anything uh, more on this island he's sending them to than is already available on the island they start off with, which, as I say, is essentially completely barren. And you know, this this is one of the I guess this is one of the things that encourages one to think of Cornelius as being a sort of psychopathic character, because one of the characteristics of psychopaths is sort of grandiose schemes and terrible planning. And he had failed dismally to properly explore the island he was planning to exile Hayes and his men to. And it turned out to be actually by far the most fertile of all the islands in the archipelago. It had a number of underground systems where a fair amount of rainwater had collected. And there was a fair bit of local wildlife. There was a small species of wallaby. There were snakes. There were lots of birds, fishing holes. And in fact, Hayes and his men found themselves in a a position, bizarrely, and and this is the great tragedy in the sense of the whole Batavia story, was that they soon realised that if the whole of the survivors were assembled on this much larger island, it's about four miles by a mile, um, they could have all survived quite handily there for indefinitely, essentially, by husbanding their resources. But when they lit the signal fires to say that there was, you know, where they found all this food and water, Cornelius responded by, you know, not going to rescue them. So what you end up with is a situation where there's a sort of standoff in the islands. And eventually Hayes and his men realise what's going on on the other island, because when the massacres begin, one or two survivors who are able to get hold of a lump of wood and sort of you know, make their way over, supported by it to this other island, let them know what's going on. And so you end up with a situation where there's where there's two armed camps. But before that happens, of course, you have the beginnings of a Lord of the Flies type situation, as you mentioned, on Batavia's graveyard. That's the island that the uh, the survivors have put themselves became known. Back after a word from our sponsors. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story.
serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the history of people drinking blood to stay young, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. In my show, The Conspirators, I take you on a journey through some of the darkest corners of history, where you'll hear about the folklore, myths, and misconceptions behind some of the darkest events that ever happened. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. And we have returned to the interview. So the killings began almost secretly, and Cornelius is pretty covert in how he begins to eliminate people. But eventually his, his group becomes bolder, and a kind of bloodlust sets in, really putting this, the remaining survivors in a constant fear for their lives. Could you explain how this transition occurred? Yeah, I mean, so, so just to sort of set the scene for you, I mean, as I mentioned, the, the Abuelos are an archipelago of islands. It's five or six major ones. So you've got to imagine that on one of the small ones, you've got the remainder of Cornelius's men and a, you know, a largest group of civilians and all the women. So we're talking there maybe about 125 people on Batavia's graveyard. Hayes and his men have been put onto another island, um, so they're out of the way. That's 40 men. Another 45 guys have been put onto a third island, and there's another 60 on a, on a fourth island. So, so the group have been split into four different camps. And what Cornelius did, having, having done that and, and established himself with a sort of, you know, controllable group of people was, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, he started by, you know, um, whittling them down rather, Rather subtly. I mean, again, he's aided tremendously by the fact that he is, in fact, you know, the, the sole authority on the island. And he, be, the, the first couple of cases were sort of trumped up charges of, you know, sort of raiding the water cask or, or something like that. So, so there were a couple of actual executions that took place that, that he ordered. And then he, he began to sort of, you know, get rid of the, the people again who he thought were going to be most dangerous. So the sort of adult, strong, younger men, uh, would be, you know, co-opted into a fishing party, for example. So three of, Three of Cornelius's men and one or two of these completely uh, innocent um, bystanders would be on a raft. They sail off sort of over the horizon. When they're out of sight of Batavia's graveyard, three mutineers would just turn on the other guys who weren't expecting to be attacked at all and just throw them overboard. And, you know, not being able to swim, they'd quite quickly drown. So, you know, that, that happened two or three times. And then, you know, people would just start disappearing on the island. You know, they'd be killed in the middle of the night. Um, nobody would know what happened to them. Cornelius would say, well, they must have, you know, gone off to join one of the other islands, the guys on one of the other islands. So, you know, it, it's one of these, you can only imagine how awful it must have been. But over a period of two or three weeks, I think it gradually becomes apparent to the people on Batavia's graveyard that something really terrible is going on. It's, it's almost like one of these sort of horror movies where you know, it gradually becomes clear that there's sort of like a maniac hiding somewhere in the in the attic. I mean, you know, Cornelius and his men are that maniac and you gradually become aware of the situation. And of course, as I say, they, you know, the situation is that you can't really do anything about it because you have, in many cases, your own family to protect sometimes or your friends. You, you, you have no access to the weapons and no way of getting off the island. And it's almost a matter of waiting for your turn to die at that point and trying to keep your head down and not attracting the, the murderer's attention. And you know, one of the most tragic finds that archaeologists have made that allow us to establish a little bit about what happened on the island uh, in the course of digging up some of the bodies of the victims of these massacres, uh, they discovered the body of a six-year-old child whose whose teeth had been almost ground away by the sort of, you know, Grind, teeth grinding in the middle of the night from the stress of the, which one imagines is largely caused by the stress of the situation of, uh, you know, knowing that you're essentially about to be murdered at almost any moment. In addition to that, I mean, Cornelius is also very aware that if a rescue voyage does occur and you know, Pelsart comes back for him, the other people on the other islands can't be allowed to survive long enough to warn Pelsart what's going on. So the mutineers, when they have made enough of these sort of driftwood uh, rafts and so on, start launching raids on the other islands um, and you know chasing down the inhabitants of the other islands openly in broad daylight and you know massacring them. And again, you know we're talking about islands that are you know tiny really by, by modern standards that are you know maybe a half a mile or a mile long, very narrow. There's no cover. 
you're running and running and you're going to run out of places to, to, to run to. And there's four or five guys at your back with swords, with spears. You know, I mean, you can imagine what it would have been like. One of the really frightening things about this story, and <laughs> it, it really scared me when, when reading your book, are these crazy, savage henchmen that he surrounds himself with. I mean, these guys would put James Bond villain henchmen to shame. <laughs> and one of the scariest in the story is one of the cabin boys. This kid's name is Jan Pilgrim, and he's absolutely terrifying. Well, I mean, again, I mean, I think that, you know, if you were a script writer, you'd be, you'd be quite proud of yourself for inventing a character like Jan Pilgrim, because, of course, Cornelius has a way of appealing to sort of tough, brutal thugs on board. And, you know, most of his lieutenants are, are that sort of person. You know, they're, they're sort of, you know, badly educated, easily seduced with, with tales of, of wealth, easily seduced by being offered the chance to rape a few women. You know, they're, they're, they're lowlifes. Pilgrim, you know, comes from a relatively good family. He's, you know, one of these sort of younger sons who are sort of forced off to find their, their, their fortune in the colonies, essentially. Um, and he's weak. You know, he's a weedy, weak, 15, 16 year old boy. And of course, the terrifying thing is that even people like that put in a position where they're given, you know, some weapons and the backing of a man like Cornelius can become suddenly powerful. And I think, you know, he becomes drunk essentially on power. Um, he, he, he was obviously sort of psychologically fairly disturbed, I think, perhaps. And, um, you know, he, he began to, to just walk around Batavia's graveyard armed, armed with a great big knife saying, you know, who wants to be stabbed to death? I could do that very prettily. And, you know, with, with Cornelius at his, at his back, of course, you know, there's nothing to protect you against someone like that. If he decides he doesn't like the look of you that morning, just wants to cut your throat, Cornelius isn't going to stop him. Um, and so, yes, Pelgrim becomes sort of one of the, the chief killers on the island, even though physically, you know, he's not really capable of overwhelming, you know, even a, a, an ordinary sized man or possibly some of the women on board. But with, with Cornelius's backing, he's, he's able to do this. And there, you know, there's some truly horrible moments where, you know, guys who, who Cornelius wants to get rid of a, a sort of pinioned by some of the other thugs on board and Pelgrim is allowed to kind of have his way with them while they're completely incapacitated. And as you say, it really is a horrible, terrifying situation to, to even imagine, much less to actually, of course, be in. And even talking about just a handful of stories, it doesn't really give the full scope of the brutality. People really need to buy the book to understand it. But I'm going to mention one account, and of all the accounts that you read about, this one was the most difficult for me, and I'm sure for others too. It's the slaughter of the Predikins family, the Bastions, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yes, I mean, you know, one of the difficult things about writing this story actually was that, you know, there are there are so many people who get killed. I mean, there's 125 murders that, that take place, um, and if you just simply go and describe each of these in detail, I mean, it's 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 horrible. It's depressing. Nobody wants to read such a bloodbath, as you say. So, so you know, many, many times I sort of, you know, I didn't go into the sort of detail I could potentially have done from the evidence that was available, um, just in a sense to sort of, you know, not overwhelm the story. But, you know, the, the Predicants family is, was a story that I thought I had to tell in, in full because, I mean, it, it is representative, but it's also one of the most terrible because, you know, this is a family of, of nine people. Um, the, the, the predicant. So the predicant is a is a Dutch word for preacher. So this is the Calvinist minister on board. He's a pretty useless character. He's only again there because he can't find a decent living in the Netherlands. You've got to remember that you know, the Dutch at this point they're Calvinists, so they believe in the idea of predestination of the soul. Uh, in other words, you know, there's nothing you can do effectively once you've been born to say whether or not you're going to go to heaven or hell. Um, therefore, the Calvinists have no kind of missionary impulse. And so unlike you know, many societies, uh, you know, the East Indies was not full of sort of anxious missionaries who wanted to convert all the local heathen. Um, and, and hence, there, was the, you know, there, there wasn't much glory in being a Calvinist minister in the East Indies, just a, the, the, the near certainty of fairly rapid death. So, you know, Bastian's guys but Bastian's his name was um was out there for pretty much the same reason as Cornelius you know he he's he had lost his living he, he used to own a horse-powered mill at a time when windmills were becoming you know much more popular and were basically putting the horse-powered guys out of business so he, he was another bankrupt 
Um, and he'd been forced to sort of flee these Indies just to keep his family together. So he was there with his wife and their children and maid. So there was, there were six children and him and his wife and their maid. So as I say, effectively a family of nine. And the oldest of the children was 18 and the youngest was, I think, six or seven years old. And amazingly, you know, they had survived not only the horrors of the voyage and the, the shipwreck, but, you know, for, for several weeks they survived intact on Batavia's graveyard when these murders began. And you know, Bastian must have hoped, I think, that you know, in part his, his standing as the, the minister might protect him. But I think most obviously uh, the thing that protected him was that one of his daughters, uh, Udic, who was 16, 15, I think 15 at that time, had attracted the attention of one of Cornelius's henchmen who decided, in fact, that he wanted to marry her. Um, and so, you know, what happened was that Cornelius, having decided, I think, that, you know, the rest of the family were, were really in the way, Bastians might have some influence, which could be, you know, inconvenient for him. And again, there's just a lot of mouths to feed there. Um, he invited, uh, Judith to, to come, uh, with her father for dinner in his tent, um, with her fiance, uh, who, of course, she'd not really had much choice in the matter when he said he wanted to marry her. His father, her father had advised that, you know, it's, it's better to do that than, let us all be killed. So, so she had essentially had to start a relationship with this rather unpleasant young mutineer who was from a, a no, again, who's an Ill- illegitimate son of a noble family. And uh, so she'd been forced to sleep with him and was going to have to marry him. And so Cornelius organised this rather distressing dinner, uh, which must have been a bit of a charade as far as the family were concerned. And she and her father went off to it. And knowing that they were out of the way, he then sent his number one henchman and his thugs around to the family's tent and um, they went into it. They grabbed the um, the lantern that was inside and extinguished it. Uh, and then in the confines of this tiny sailcloth tent, they, they just massacred every other member of the family by using daggers and clubs to smash them to pieces, essentially. And again, you know, there, there were terrible little sort of vignettes that, that emerged from this, you know, that... Um, the youngest, the, the youngest son sort of nearly escapes. He crawls between the, the legs of one of the mutineers who doesn't notice him going and is almost out of the tent when they realise and they just sort of turn around and smash his brains open with an axe. So the rest of the family were, were all killed, um, thrown into a pit. And uh, when Udic got back from dinner, her family were, were all dead. And there was very, very much nothing that she or her father could do about that. Couldn't even, I mean, to, to complain would have been to have just lose your own life. You talked earlier about Lucretia Jans, the the beautiful woman on the way to meet her husband, coveted by the officers on the Batavia and her subsequent humiliation on the deck of the ship, meant to rouse the anger of Pelsart. So she's on the island too, but she doesn't suffer the same fate as most of the other women. Yes, well, absolutely. Uh, it got into trouble later on, actually. I mean, so, so, so Cretia, uh, as she was known, that's the sort of diminutive of Lucretia. Cretia was, um, absolutely, uh, earmarked Cornelius' sort of personal use. And I mean, again, this sort of tells you something about him. I mean, he didn't just sort of seize her and rape her. He, he went through this incredible sort of perverted almost attempt to seduce her with the sort of, you know, inviting her to his tent, breaking open the best wine that they salvaged from the ship, trying to persuade her that he was a great guy and that, you know, she, she, she should transfer her loyalty to him. Of course, she's a married woman at this point, um, and she's perfectly aware of what he is. And again, one can only imagine the sort of horrible moral accommodations that she's forced to make with herself. You know, she, she actually resisted him for quite some time, 10 or 12 days, and eventually, Cornelius' lieutenant, a man called David Zebank, he was. This is the guy who massacred the, the Predigant's family. Eventually, he lost his temper and said to Cornelius, you know, you're wasting your time with this woman. I'll, I'll make her do what you want. And he went to, to, to Creature and essentially said, you know, either tonight you sleep with the commandant or you're, I'm going to cut your throat. So she gave in at that point and, and began a relationship with, with Cornelius. And, you know, of course, he was... You know, trying to make her the lady of the island, you know, the, the whole of the idea that she was getting the best clothing available, the finest wines. And I, I don't think that she can possibly have enjoyed that situation. I don't think she had any choice but to give in to it. But, uh, you know, of course, when she got eventually got to Batavia, having survived, a lot of the other women who had been, you know, herded into another tent and essentially were just held as flesh to be peddled out to the uh, mutineers who could just go in there and take one for the evening they were very jealous of her sort of superior situation she was only being raped by one man and they denounced her as, as a confederate in fact of Cornelius and there was a, a court case in Batavia where she was accused of being one of the mutineers which you know she wasn't but uh, the, she she was in a, a hideously appalling moral and, and physical bind I think at that point essentially. So let's go back to Weber Hayes 
and the soldiers that Cornelius had hoped would just shrivel up and die. <laughs> but, but they don't. As you mentioned, they find food and water and also start hearing rumors about what's going on back on Batavia's graveyard. So they begin to build a defense. Could you walk us through the conflict that begins to, to escalate between these two camps? Absolutely. It, it's, I mean, this is one of the, it's a relief to encounter a man like Weber Hayes in this story because at this point, you know, there were so few heroes. You know, you've got a, a, a drunken skipper, a weak-willed merchant, and a bunch of psychopaths. And, and Hayes is the one person who acts properly and decently in this whole story, pretty much. I mean, to be fair, you know, this isn't Hollywood. You know, he's, he can't mount a raid on the, the main island and rescue the women, which is undoubtedly what you'd be expected to do if they ever make a film of this. They're going to have to change the story. But what he does do is he fortifies his island and protects the men he's got there and the people who join him um, slowly as this goes on um, from attack. And, you know, that is not an easy thing to do because, as I said before, the, the mutineers have all the sophisticated weaponry, including two muskets, which they managed to save from the ship. And uh, all that Hayes has got is what he can manufacture from you know, what washes up on shore and what's available on this coral island. And he does his best. I mean, the first thing that he did, in fact, was to construct two little tiny forts, which he made up from with his men from sort of coral rocks. And, and these still exist, actually, on the island. I went to see them. Um, and they are the oldest European constructions in Australia. Um, so they have a sort of certain historical importance. So he puts one on the coast where he can as a lookout and then another one sort of right in the middle of the island. and There's a sort of beacon between them. So you can he keeps all of his men in the center of the island where they can't easily be surprised. And there's a sort of watch kept on you know, anyone who's going to come and raid them uh, with the ability to send a message. So, I mean, he's he's, he's clever. He's well organized. He, you know, defensively, his strategy is actually pretty good. Um, and having made these forts, they start to construct whatever weapons they can. They, they gather driftwood. Uh, they they take the nails out of the bits of wood and sort of turn them, you know, they, they bind them onto the end of, of driftwood to make spears. They collect lumps of sort of fist-sized coal that they can throw at people. Um, and, you know, they're fortunate in that the, the way in which this island works is there's kind of a little tiny mini cliff of about six or seven feet high from where the beach is to where the mainland of the island is. And that's the obstacle you've got to overcome. So if they're going to be attacked, you know, that they are the defensive position isn't that bad because they can see the people coming. They have to cross the sort of half a mile of sort of mud flats to get to the shore and then climb this little mini cliff. And all the time you can be pelting them with rocks and, you know, kicking them and stabbing down at them with your makeshift spears. So it's not easy for Cornelius to, to deal with Hayes. Um, but he has to do it. I mean, for two reasons. Firstly, as I said, you know, he's got to get rid of these people before the rescue ship arrives or he's in severe peril. And secondly, of course, you know, Hayes now, in fact, is in control of the complete water supply for the whole of the archipelago <coughs> through Cornelius's own stupidity. So Cornelius's first plan, in fact, was to um, to barter. He sent some of his um, confederates to um, to offer to sort of trade some of the, the clothing and um, the food that they had uh, for water. And Hayes refused to have anything to do with that and, in fact, um, seized you know, several of the um, several of the mutineers and uh, Cornelius himself was, in fact, captured in the course of this. So so this changes the balance of the situation in the islands almost immediately. You know, Hayes puts to death three of Cornelius's main lieutenants because they're just too dangerous to keep around. And he hurls Cornelius into this pit in the middle of the island uh, where he's kept under constant guard and um, you know, forced effectively to just become a servant of the the, the loyalists, you know, they, they throw down birds on him and he has to pluck the birds and, and before they can be cooked for the, the, uh, the loyalist dinner, he's allowed to keep sort of one in every 20 birds or something like that is the, the deal that they have with him. So Cornelius is out of the, out of the picture. Now, you know, this, of course, you know, is good news and bad news for the, for the good guys, because it's very much like, you know, the, the, the position in World War II, where the Allies are sort of thinking to themselves, is it a good idea to take out Hitler, or would it just mean that the Nazis get someone more competent in command? And this is what happens in Cornelius's place. The, the surviving mutineers elect one of the soldiers, a guy called Wouter Laus, who is, in fact, a lot more competent than Cornelius when it comes to strategy. Uh, and he, he launches several attempts to overwhelm the mutineers by force, uh, using the gunpowder that they have. And you know, there, there were a couple of attempted attacks which Hayes fends off. And after after a while, so we're talking now about maybe two months after the, the shipwreck, there's a, a, there's a final assault on, on Hayes' position. Everyone else has been wiped out by this point. The other two islands have been wiped out. So it's Cornelius' men against Hayes' men. 
uh, sorry, Cornelius's men take everybody with them. They, they, you know, the, the whole community, including the women, they're all put on board these ships and they, they sail off for the, the final climactic battle. And in what has to be one of the greatest moments of good timing in world history, Pelsart shows up just in the nick of time. I would never have dared to invent that. I mean, if I was writing a novel, you'd think this is just way, way too convenient. But yeah, I mean, Pelsart, I mean, this in itself is a, an incredible story. I mean, it's sort of, it, it's forgotten in the, the, the more incredible story. But, you know, Pelsart and Jacobs make it to Batavia. That's an 1800 mile voyage in an overcrowded boat with 40 people on board, including a sort of babe in arms, but, you know, and, and maybe about a foot or two foot of, of freeboard across the Timor Sea and then around Java to Batavia. You know, it's unprecedented until Captain Bly's voyage after the bounty mutiny about 180 years, 160 years later. It was, in fact, the longest sort of small boat open voyage that we know about. And then they made it without losing a single person. And of course, you know, Pelsard is in absolute disgrace, not because anyone knows what's going on on Batavis Cove, but because he's lost a ship and 13 cases of silver. So, you know, he's immediately ordered by by the, the head of the VOC in Batavia, Jakarta, as I mentioned, is the same place, to go back and get basically the silver. If there's any survivors, pick them up as well, but you go and fetch that silver. So he's given a small ship uh, and, and sent back south. And you know, he, he spends quite a long time looking for the islands. Again, I mean, you know, they didn't know the longitude, only the latitude, and they hadn't got that very closely. So he spent almost a month, in fact, sailing fruitlessly to and fro off the coast of Australia. And then finally, one day, sort of stumbled across the islands and saw smoke and realised that some people must still be alive. So he must have been pretty happy at that point. But as you mentioned, in fact, what's happened is he has interrupted the final battle between the loyalists and the mutineers. And... It is just an incredible story. I mean, I, I can't help but feel it could potentially make a good film in the sense that what happens is, is almost incredible. The, 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 you know, the mutineers are fighting on the far side of the island. So the loyalists, have, uh, to keep the boats from the mutineers, have hidden them sort of a mile and a half away on the far side of this island. So Hayes has to send a group of his men to go and get the sort of raft that they've built and across a mile and a half island and then row for the ship. And at the same time, of course, the mutineers realise that if... The good guys get to the ship first and tell Pelsa what's happened. They're, de- they're dead because the ship, of course, has got guns on it, a fully armed crew, and you know they're, they're, they're done for at that point. And what you effectively get is a race between the goodies and the baddies in their, their little handmade rafts to be the first to, to reach the ship. And they're, they're closing in on it from, from both sides. And you can imagine Pelsart's sort of bemusement to say, what the heck is going on here? There, there are two boats approaching. Very fortunately for us, for, 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 for justice and for history, because we would never have known what happened otherwise, um, Hayes' men make it just to the rescue ship first, and they're able to scramble on board and sort of gasp out their story just before the mutineers arrive on their boat. So when the mutineers pull alongside, there are several uh, cannon trained on them. They're told to disarm themselves before they, they come on board. Um, and after a rather tense standoff, they do so, and the mutiny is at an end. So probably on the minds of many listeners now, what happens to Cornelius? Well, he is put to the torture. Um, the Dutch at this point used uh, a form of water torture, which is you know not 100 miles away from waterboarding, essentially. And so what would happen was that they would have built a, a sort of frame, almost like a door frame, which you could easily do from the available supplies of wood. And the Cornelius would, was strapped to this door frame, spread eagled, um, with a, a sort of canvas collar put around his neck that was then sort of pulled tight under uh, on his neck so that uh, you could pour water into it and it wouldn't leak out at the bottom and uh, essentially what happens is you get some large jugs of water clamber up a ladder that rests across this frame until you can reach him and you start pouring the water into his collar and as it comes up to your nose the only way you can breathe is by swallowing it Um, and you swallow and then they just top up the water and you end up in this situation. I mean, again, horribly described in the sources where, you know, water starts leaking out of your eyeballs and sockets and, uh, you know, you become grotesquely distended. Um, you know, if, if you've vomited up, they just start again um, until you tell them what they want to hear. And of course, from the point of view of the you know, story, the, the trouble is, that, you know, Pelsard is very anxious to get a tale that where he is not guilty and Cornelius is completely guilty. So it's, it's, as a historian, you have to wonder about any evidence that comes up from torture. And unfortunately, the way that the Dutch legal system worked at that time was that it was only 
evidence that was given under torture and then confirmed sort of freely the next day was the only sort of evidence acceptable. So, of course, what happened was that for the first few days, Cornelius would confess and then recover. And the next day, he'd deny, he'd deny all the story that had come out under torture and they'd just torture him again. And eventually he realised that, you know, that they were going to keep doing this and there was no point in just denying it. So, so one of these confessions stood. But they didn't sort of, as we would do now, sort of hear a load of evidence from the survivors, which would have been much, much more useful. And the only real sort of corroborating evidence we have, therefore, there are two letters, essentially. There's one that Bastian's the predicant wrote uh, after they got back to Batavia to some relatives at home and an account that was written by one of Hayes' men. And those two do corroborate the story that came out under torture pretty much exactly. So I felt, you know, from a historical point of view, it, it, it seems that it's, it's reasonable to assume that the broad brush of, of what Cornelius said, you know, and hence the story that I've just told you, is is the truth, more or less. But Cornelius was was tortured to, to give this. Uh, and I think that, you know, again, it, it says something about Cornelius and about Pelsart too, that Pelsart did not feel safe in taking Cornelius back to face justice in Batavia. Again, you're talking about another month on board a ship and a, a guy with a silver tongue um, and, you know, the ability to persuade all sorts of people to do, you know, really quite incredible things. And I don't think Pelsart thought it was a good idea to let Cornelius have another month uh, on another ship to potentially foment another mutiny. So he decided to deal with Cornelius and several of his henchmen on the islands. They were they were hanged. Again, that's not the sort of modern neat hanging that we're talking you know, with a, a trapdoor and a quick broken neck. Uh, what we're talking about is a short drop and being strangled to death. And in Cornelius's case, you know, because he was such a hideous criminal, he had his uh, hands amputated beforehand. So he probably bled to death before he could, in fact, strangle to death. And he was just left sort of dangling from this makeshift gibbet um, on one of the islands with several of his companions and only the, the lesser mutineers were then taken back to, to face the Dutch East India Company's justice in Batavia. And Bastions, uh, the minister whose family Cornelius had ordered slaughtered, actually offers last rites to Cornelius. Well, yes, I mean, it's his job to do so, I suppose. I mean, I think that, you know, again, I couldn't possibly have dared to write Cornelius's death scene if it wasn't what actually happened. But, you know, Cornelius was completely unrepentant. So so even after his hands have been amputated with chisels uh, and he's sort of forced to sort of clamber up this, this ladder to, to be hanged, he's he's turning and screaming, revenge, revenge, to anyone who'll listen. And the the case seems to be that the other mutineers insisted, as far as they could insist on anything at that point, that he went first. Because, again, they seemed to have feared that, you know, if they were hanged and Cornelius was left alive, he'd find some way of sort of talking his way out of trouble and might survive. And, and having got, him, got them into this situation where they were facing capital punishment and, you know, if they had any religious belief at all, they must have believed that they they were certainly going to be going down below for the, the hideous crimes that they were responsible for. You know, the one thing that they wanted at that point was to make sure that he was going with them. So we're running a little short on time right now. So anyone who wants to know what happens to Pelsart, Jacobs, Christians, Walter Laus, Weber Hayes, and <laughs> the creepy little cabin boy, Jan Pelgrim, should go out and buy your book. And for those who are interested in learning more about you and your book, where do you suggest they go? Well, obviously, the book's easily available. It's still in print. You can get it from Amazon or other fine booksellers. It's called Batavia's Graveyard um, by Mike Dash, so not too difficult to find. Um, I, I have a, a blog at mike-history.com where I write other stories of this sort, um, interesting history, history with all the interesting bits left in, I call it. Um, so, I mean, not book length, but sort of shorter stories, but, you know, equally eye opening. I have to say that, you know, of all the stories I've ever written, the Batavia one is my favorite because, you know, when, when you're a writer, you're, you're constantly told, when you're a historian, writer, you're told by your publishers, you know, we want this to be more like a novel. And as a historian, you're always saying, well, it doesn't work that way. History is much more lumpy. There are missing bits and we don't have evidence and it's not a, like a, you know, it doesn't follow a novelistic structure usually. And the Batavia is the one story that does have a sort of beginning and a middle and an end and a hero and a villain and, a, you know, everything you would want to get in a novel. So it's my favourite. But there are other great stories on MikeDashHistory.com, which I'd love people to, to go and read. Mr. Mike Dash, thank you for taking the time to talk to me about the Batavia Mutiny and Massacre. It's been a really interesting chat, and I'm, I'm glad to have had the chance to, to tell you a bit about the story. I'm Eric Rivenis, and this has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Find me on Facebook and at 
mostnotorious.com. And if you haven't done so already, please leave a rating for me on iTunes. I appreciate everyone. My parting advice, learn how to swim, because you never know when you'll be shipwrecked with a mad Dutch Anabaptist apothecary on a coal pile of an island off the Australian coast. (laughs) Have a good day. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.